I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Even though young college-educated adults are moving to city centers in far greater numbers than any time in 40 years, it is also true that poverty is growing in most American cities. While at least one strategy for tackling poverty, increasing the minimum wage, is gaining strength, our policy response to the problem is pretty anemic. Enter Scott Bernstein. As president of the Center for Neighborhood Technology in Chicago, Scott is working on detailed plans to show cities how they can reduce the cost of living for people with low incomes, and at the same time, put those same people to work to make the changes that reduce their cost of living. It's a scheme that is at odds with conventional approaches, and we talked to Scott earlier this week to learn more. Scott, you have pursued many ways of recalculating and reducing the cost of life in cities, particularly for people who are living at or below the poverty line. It's an interesting side of the ledger to work on because most efforts to improve the lives of people who are poor focus on increasing income, not on reducing cost. What are the most promising ways to reduce cost of living? The top cost of living other than housing is the cost of transportation, which in uh poorly arrayed places can cost as much as housing or even more. Um, a second opportunity is in reducing the cost of energy used to condition or light a house. A third opportunity uh, is the cost of public services used to mitigate against uh, the cost of flooding for um, stormwater, which is usually in uh, in the form of sewer services. And uh, fourth one is in the cost of food, which often isn't directly available in the community. And a fifth is in the cost of uh, telephone and telecommunication services, which there are many choices on these days. And uh, there are others, but those would be five uh, big ones. In certain jurisdictions, the cost of Water can cost as much as the cost of energy. Boston and in Houston, that's the case. So it's a little bit different everywhere. But uh, I guess the basic finding is if we're trying to keep the cost of housing uh, below 30% of income, um, what about that other 70%? And uh, we find that by focusing on the efficient use of energy or water or uh, stormwater services and more efficient ways to shop for food or get it delivered, and above all, a more efficient way to get around. One can reduce the cost of living in close to real time within a one to ten year period uh, as fast or faster as you could expect from uh, increasing incomes. You've done some very specific work in Memphis, something I've never seen before, where you actually do the math. Uh, as I've said, it reminds me of the movie Dave, where he sits down with his cabinet and his friend mm -hmm. is beside him. And, you know, they're running through the numbers, uh, trying to get the federal budget in line. And and you you identified the number of people who are actually who, who are poor. And then you actually show in some detail how they could get out of poverty. Explain what you've done there. Memphis has a population of 640,000 people, and the mayor asked us, is there a way to reduce the poverty rate in Memphis, which is currently at 27% by 10 percentage points, or to 17% within a 10-year period? 
So there are 180,000 people or so in poverty in Memphis today. Uh, the poverty rate is calculated on the total population, so a 10% reduction would be 64,000 uh, fewer people in poverty 10 years from now than there are today. And that would reduce the uh, number of people by 64,000 to 120,000 or so. Um, still leaves a, a big burden, but doing it that way would would be a worthwhile goal. Um, it's never been done before um, at that rate. And what we've done is linked the things we talked about a minute ago, the potential for saving money through transportation, energy, water, landscape efficiency, food shopping, telecommunications, to uh, a set of benefits, which would come partly by reducing the cost of living and partly by employing people to do the things that would reduce the cost of living, building and operating a better transit system, retrofitting all buildings in Memphis to use energy more efficiently, changing the landscape by restoring the tree canopy and planting more green space to replace pavement so you could catch raindrops where they fall instead of bottling rainstorms and trying to treat them as, as waste or dumping it in the Mississippi. Doing those things, we found, could in fact uh, achieve the goal. And uh, what we did was come up with a scorekeeping system to show how much of that would have to be done uh, in order to uh, to meet the goals, how many jobs created, how much extra income, how much reduction in the cost of living, how much would people need to start saving. And uh, we think it's a feasible goal. And is the big cost savings here cost of transportation? Transportation has the biggest potential because it's the number one or number two cost of living for the poor almost everywhere. Almost everywhere, yeah. Yeah, in, in America. So in Memphis, you're looking at households earning average incomes, uh, spending 52% of their income for median income households, 52% of income for those households goes for the combined cost of housing and transportation for households earning 80% of median or below at 63%. So $2 out of three are going for housing or for transportation. Let's say that it was 30% for one and 30% for, for the other, housing and transportation respectively, and you're trying to meet a cost of living reduction goal. If you could save a dollar in housing or a dollar on transportation, it's a dollar. <laughs> you should be indifferent. It's hard to reduce the cost of housing by that dollar, but by finding ways to get people to use the mass transit that's there or to improve the mass transit or to improve travel options by uh, making shared vehicles available, or even better, by ensuring that everyday amenities like good food stores are within walking distance of where people live, it becomes very possible to do that. We have um, mapped out the cost of living for every census black group in the United States, and we can find comparable populations with comparable and non-comparable conditions and show what the difference is in the cost of living. If you live in Memphis, and you're earning average income, you're likely to be spending uh, close to $11,000 a year 
for the cost of transportation. If you're the average income person in Philadelphia, you're only spending 6,800. If you're uh, the average income person in Charlotte or in San Jose, you're spending north of $13,000 per year. So which of those would you rather be in? Yeah. Again, I've never seen calculations as detailed as the ones you've prepared in Memphis. And the notion, too, of of reducing the cost of living and creating employment for people in reducing the cost of living. In other words, in making the moves that you have to make to reduce the cost of living, I, I just think is is brilliant. And I Thank think you. it's true to say that the changes that you're suggesting don't just benefit people who are poor. I mean, the whole community, for instance, can benefit everybody. From right. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, you know, Chicago, if you go and you you look at peak commuting time at, at who's using the Chicago Transit Authority, it sure it's people in poor communities. It's also people in first ring suburbs of all incomes. It's also uh, people on East Lakeshore Drive who feel like taking the bus over to the South Loop or, or walking rather than uh, rather than driving a mile or two. It's, and, uh, and of course, any greening that's done, any water that's saved. I mean, again, we all have to pay for the sewer system, um, new sewer connections. So that's a benefit. Everybody will get the benefit of a greener city out of this strategy. Everybody will get the benefit out of the environmental protection that will happen because there will be lower air emissions and less pollution in the waterway. Uh, it will be a healthier and more livable city. It will be a very attractive sort of place. I mean, Memphis, when we were asked to come out there, struck us as an all-dressed-up-and-ready-to-go city that hadn't gotten the reinvestment that it needed. And uh, it's not that there isn't an economy there. The annual GDP of Memphis, Tennessee is, uh, is $60 billion a year and growing. But the benefit of that growth hasn't been evenly shared. Uh, income's been dropping while both the cost of living and GDP have been growing. So cost of living means the money doesn't go as far as it should, particularly if you're poor. And uh, growing GDP means that growth has been mostly either institutional or or business growth. And, uh, I mean, just for fun, I did a calculation. If you could somehow devote 1% of GDP to uh, a fund, to finance community improvements of the sort that would uh, benefit everybody in the way we were just talking about, it would amortize a $10.5 billion investment. So for a whole lot less than $10.5 billion, you could get a new transit system, a retrofit for every building in, in Memphis, a greener city, uh, smarter uh, arrangements to help people make these kinds of choices. And you'd be ahead of the game. You get the benefits of reducing poverty in a fully employed uh, population, and Memphis gets a reputation as a can-do city. Yep. Well, you're now taking a look uh, for us at, at a number of night communities uh, to That's come correct. up with, with a specific recipe for reducing cost and increasing um, net income and jobs for people who are poor. How do the opportunities and challenges change from community to community, Scott? Well, it's really interesting. One of the first things we did was look at the growth in poverty rate in these cities, for example, from 1970 to 2013. So in Akron, Ohio, the 1970, uh, the poverty rate was 12%. By 2013, it was 28%. Uh, 
Charlotte, North Carolina in 1970 was 15% and actually dipped to 11%. And then uh, post-crash, it's uh, crept back up to 17%. The highest poverty rates are today are in of that bunch are in uh, Detroit, 39%, and Gary at um, 38%. Philadelphia is somewhat lower at 27%, but it's a much bigger city of the group. It's actually got the largest number of people in poverty, almost 400,000. Even San Jose, California, whose MSA is by far the richest in the United States, home of Silicon Valley, right, uh, went from 9% uh, poverty rate in 1970 to 12% in 2013. And uh, St. Paul, the Twin Cities, is the fastest growing um, and some would argue the most economically uh, strong MSA in the United States. Uh, the poverty rate there grew from 10% to 23%. And oh. All of those compare to a uh, relatively more tepid growth from 13% to 15% uh, across the United States. So what happened? The, the poor got concentrated in central cities. And while it's true at the moment that poverty is growing faster in the suburbs than in um, central cities, nonetheless, by far, it's still a central city problem and likely to be for a long time. And uh, so what we've done is we're busily calculating a couple of things. First is the um, marginal rate of poverty reduction associated with each 1% drop in the poverty rate in each of these places. And we're looking at a range of impacts from poverty reduction at anywhere from uh, 10% to 30% for each of these cities. And then we're going through the same analysis that we went through in Memphis to um, calculate what uh, a set of programs are and their respective impacts would be to actually meet those goals uh, in each of those cities. Scott, you're a, you're a long-time Chicago organizer, um, so was our president. Um, and I know that from you've developed uh, your your H plus T, your housing plus transportation index was was adopted by HUD. So you've got someone's ear. Why is there not more conversation about what I think is an extremely practical approach to poverty reduction? And the numbers you just gave us clearly say this is an urgent and growing problem. Why are we not doing this in every city? Well, I don't want to go through all the reasons why we're not doing it. I will say that the way the federal government's organized is highly siloed. Poverty is seen as a service support sort of issue and less so as an investment issue. The agencies like HUD and DOT that do help facilitate capital investment don't always have a poverty reduction mission associated with the way they do scorekeeping. If I can use your analogy from the beginning of this talk, uh, they don't have the Kevin Klein's friend CPA to bring a common sense scorekeeping to it. Uh, DOT investments traditionally have been scored, for example, on, uh, on traffic reduction and congestion mitigation and not on... Uh, creating and capturing local benefits like cost of living production or permanent job creation or equity or livability. That's starting to change in the adoption of the Housing and Transportation Affordability Index. The version we did for HUD and DOT is called the Location Affordability Index, by the way, is a step in the right direction. But I think the real reason is, frankly, that uh, there needs to be a shout out, a demand 
uh, put on uh, both the federal government and on cities and states themselves to connect the dot. Frankly, the only thing we've really done here is to show people what the impacts would be if you tried to target the economic benefits of all this efficiency in a way that actually would benefit the poor as well as the regions uh, that they're in. And uh, I think that finding a clearer way to communicate that would go a long way. We've got about 18 months left in the uh, Obama administration to try and get any commitments made, and then we don't know what's going to happen after that. So not a bad time to get the word around. A theme of your work has been finding stranded assets or latent potential in lots of things. It's it's a question that we're also exploring at night, not only through your work uh, that you're doing with us through uh, the Center for Neighborhood Technology, CNT, but also through an initiative we call Reimagining the Civic Commons. Where, in your opinion, is the greatest potential to reclaim and reemploy stranded assets in our cities? Great question, Carol. Um, There's really two very different sets of stranded assets. The first are the more intangible sort of of the skills and know-how of people. And uh, the opportunity that's there is to, in effect, mobilize that know-how to take charge of their own communities' um, economies. But the second one, interestingly, that uh, arguably is worth as much are the underutilized physical assets of a city, uh, the land and the rights of way and the hundred years worth of investments in roads, water, sewer, bridges, railroads, uh, and the like that uh, are there um, and uh, too often have been prematurely abandoned. And, uh, you know, one definition of economic development is that it it's not so much that investing a certain amount of money always gives you a certain benefit, but uh, that uh, certain certain kinds of assets are are poorly understood or poorly utilized and uh, or invisible. And by uh, unhiding them and making them understood, it becomes possible for people to mobilize. I mean, a couple blocks from my office, we got a great example of a of a project along Bloomingdale Avenue that uh, abandoned elevated uh, freight rail line, three and a half miles long, a discussion that started in our office, turned into a uh, into a multi-year effort that coming to a successful close in a, in a couple of months, uh, now called the 606, a three and a half mile walking, hiking, biking trail, elevated, sort of a highline light uh, for Chicago that incredibly mobilized people on the community organizing side, on the municipal side, on the civic institution side, on the investment side. And uh, there's a whole lot more of those opportunities to come. What if we had the kinds of maps that would make it easier to see uh, where those opportunities are? Um, On the south side, in Washington Park, uh, some years ago, we made the case that instead of abandoning a uh, transit line down there. They should uh, reinvest in it. And uh, the community got involved in planning with us, and a whole brand new station uh, got built, but there wasn't the same sort of attention paid to the community um, surrounding the station. I mention this one because it's a hotbed of placemaking and community organizing right now, and it's one of the two finalist sites for the uh, 
the future Obama presidential library. So what if we use that underutilized property in the advent of a major federally driven investment uh, like that in the president's legacy, where he did a lot of his local work in a community context to uh, where the outcome is a revitalized uh, community around its uh, cultural assets and its um, place awareness and, and true placemaking on a neighborhood scale and not just a, um, a tourist destination on the one hand and an academic asset on the other. So we think that by taking a step back, taking the time to remap what's around us, that uh, you can put those kinds of opportunities in an investment framework. That means taking a risk now with an expected return in the future, and that's a good discipline for uh, for economically struggling communities to learn how to do. Scott, it is always a pleasure to find out what is on your brain. Uh, I appreciate you being our guest on Night Cities. Thanks. You're very welcome, Carol. Scott Bernstein is president of the Center for Neighborhood Technology based in Chicago. You can learn more about his work at cnt.org. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at knightfoundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know from this interview and all of our other interviews. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.